Thank you for downloading this podcast hosted by the Cambridge MBA. Today in Cambridge, we have Fiona Brenner, a current MBA student, and on the line with us is Carl Richter, co-founder and joint CEO of Engaged Investments. He's also the social impact investment advisor to the Euclid Network, which is a network of European civil society leaders. Carl, thank you for joining us. Uh, could you start by telling us a bit more about what is Engaged Investments? Hi, yes. Engaged Investment is a, a social investment financial intermediary that uh, my business partner and I uh, founded uh, last year. So um, that was it was created essentially after Rupert Evenet, my business partner, and I uh, wrote a report the year before called Making Good in Social Impact Investment, and that report was looking at how the social investment market can grow and particularly also um, how we can tell the story of social investment or impact investing to to the investment community. And in that context, it was effectively creating a prospectus for uh, or looking to see how we could actually frame social investment in the terms of a, of a prospectus. And uh, in, in, in writing the recommendations, we, we looked at some of the things that um, some of the market infrastructure that is required, one of which we, we recognize as being that there's currently very poor data, particularly investment data, transaction data, um, and time series data. And so that uh, motivated us to to set up the company um, and then also focus specifically on uh, seeing how we could we could address that gap and uh, that led us into what we're currently doing now which is running a, a pilot called Engaged X which is a pilot index capturing financial data investment data you know transaction data uh, from social investors from fund managers and what we're looking to do is capture that data and then being able to present it in time series format so that it can be recognized as a uh, distinctive capital market. That's great, thanks. Um, I'd like to ask some more about the, um, the work that you're doing to create social investment as, um, as a capital as an asset class. Um, but before we do, could you just talk to us a bit about what is meant by social investment um, and how it differs from, from normal investment? The uh, definition is still uh, to be pinned down, and that to some degree makes it uh, still an exciting market because it's uh, being shaped and growing and emerging, but at the same time also I think makes it very difficult for new players to get in. The definition that, that I tend to use because I find it the easiest one to use is um, when we're talking about social investment, we're talking about investment where there is a, a specific objective to create social or non-financial objectives as well as to create financial objectives. So it may be a loan to a charity where there's a a requirement to to get the money paid as well as interest, but the lender or the uh, investor, if it it might have been an equity investment into social enterprise, um, also has some very, very clear targets that they want to see um, achieve, whether that be improvement in educational attainment or whether it be reducing homelessness or whatever that might be. I pause at saying it's different to normal investment uh, because I think uh, at the end of the day it's not very different at all. At the end of the day, investment is about risk and return and the fundamental characteristics of um, allocating capital. But what is distinctive here is the additionality of, in addition to um, say, just looking at the financial 
requirements also to have an explicit non-financial objective attached to it. Um, and, and you say that the, the boundaries are quite um, unspecific yet, um, as more is being done to understand the boundaries of it. Uh, what uh, would you say at the moment is the size of the social investment market? And is it something that's rapidly growing at the moment? Or does it, is there something more that needs to happen to help it grow? The latest figures uh, from certainly the ones that the government, the UK government and cabinet office are using suggest that about 165 million a year get invested in, in this way. And I think there's some new figures coming out to suggest that that is, is now growing and on the up, which is exciting. But at the same time, that, that makes it um, still a very minuscule amount and a drop in the ocean of the broader pools of capital uh, that are um, you know, circulating. The the challenge again comes down to definition because the broader you throw the definition, the the larger the pool, the the narrower the definition and focus, the the smaller the number. Um, and I think a lot of the time you might speak to what you refer to as as normal investors, and they might might say, well, actually, we we also take into account um, externalities or you know whether they're positive externalities or the like. So the challenge and the danger, um, I think, is. Uh, is is around first of all describing it as a distinctive uh, market, which suddenly puts a framework around it. And then when you look inside, um, you know at the moment it is it is still a very very small market. So therefore, um, we we run the danger of of one on the one hand trying to um, define it as something distinctive with distinctive characteristics that we can encourage more people. And describe more, you know, encourage more people to get involved, and just, and describe what the attributes and the characteristics are. Uh, but at the same time, sometimes that also creates creates barriers. So the, there was another report written by the Boston Consulting Group, and they projected that the market in the UK could uh, reach the size of one billion pounds in a few years. And again, one needs to look at the the assumptions in that in terms of what was included and what was excluded. Who are these investors? Are they are they government bodies? Are they actually private investors? It ranges from government-initiated funds or quasi-government funds, whether it be funds that are currently managed, for example, by the social investment business. They were specifically seeded by government. There's also big society capital, which uh, received money from dormant bank accounts, but that was very much uh, uh, on the back of, of government policy. That Money was also then uh, leveraged in uh, private money from institutional banks uh, through the Merlin Agreement. So you can see a very strong and heavy involvement there uh, with government. But then there's a, there's another broader range of investors, whether it be the the private uh, uh, banks or the the institutional investors that are setting up some funds, all the way through to larger charities and foundations and, and trust funds where they are looking to um, take some of their corpus and invest it in this way. And at some point, um, you know, it will be quite exciting to see more charities actually use the, the capital that they invest as their, as their corpus normally in the, in the open markets, but to then see that this capital perhaps moving also explicitly towards uh, investing in a way that achieves social outcomes and is aligned with uh, their mission. Um, just to go back to when you were talking about some of the boundaries, uh, the work that you're doing with EngagedX, you're building up um, a database which is to support uh, social investment as an asset class. 
Um, as you're developing it, what boundaries are you setting um, as you're developing the information? Um, how, how are you setting it out and, and, seeing, and, and categorizing it within the, within the asset class? Maybe let's just take a step back from the description as an asset class. I think a lot of people are using that description. Uh, it's, it's very helpful, certainly framing social investment and impact investing in that way because it starts raising the bar and the expectation about how to articulate it, looking at it as a, as a style of investment, as, a, as an approach to investment, one realizes that it, 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 is, it, it can be very, very broad spread and therefore can actually extend across other traditional asset classes. And so uh, there's the danger of, of confusion there. We are currently stepping back from referring to it as an asset class for that reason and rather describing it as a capital market and a very exciting uh, emerging capital market that uh, reflects this, uh, this style, this approach of investing that can actually overlay over many, many other um, asset classes. And in that, in that sense, there's the opportunity to, to scale. We're, we're capturing data, transaction-level data, so asking uh, fund managers to tell us how much was invested in a particular deal, what their expected returns were, what the actual returns were. Did they lose the money? In other words, what is the what that gives us a picture about risk going forward. We're also asking uh, questions around, uh, you know, what kind of product type was it? Was it an equity investment? Was it a loan, a secured loan, unsecured loan? Was it perhaps a hybrid mezzanine finance, or even um, you know, a very specific product like a like a social impact bond? which I'm sure you're aware of. Um, and then, again, there's another layer of, of contextual questions which we're um, asking or data fields which we're capturing around the, the sector that the organization is in, the geography that they are active in. That gives us an interesting map of, of capital flows, and we can create, begin to create a, um, the, the, the topography of um, capital flows and, and start comparing that to other issues such as deprivation indices, um, policy decisions by region and, and so forth, and, and even demographics. So, for example, we could, we could imagine down the line getting to a position where we can start comparing the amount of money being invested in, say, education compared with care for the elderly. Um, and are you finding that there's uh, a lot of homogeneity across that data, or is it is it quite varied? I mean, are you finding that there are similarities in how social impact is measured, or is that or is it varying by each um, each fund that you're talking to? It's difficult to say because we're still in the process of capturing the data. Uh, my instinct would be that it would be very varied um, because of the the fundamental nature of uh, so many different product types being included, so you know, different different investing styles, and fundamentally different types of organisations being funded from non-profits through to uh, for-profit social enterprises at the one end, and and in terms of legal form, everything from charities through to companies limited by shares of guarantee, you know, community interest companies, and the like. What that's going to reveal, hopefully. Uh, is the beginning of, of trends. So we can start seeing perhaps whether certain types of organization use certain types of measurements um, and, and not forgetting, of course, the motivation of the investors. So you know, we're also capturing information about where the money is coming from, if it's, if it's, uh, it's 
ultimately it's 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 being sourced from philanthropic sources or government sources or institutional private sources um and we can then start seeing whether the the investors themselves start having different requirements and and whether that then is reflected in the type of metrics being used um, in your report on making good and social impact investing, uh, you focus quite a lot on risk and return. Um, mm-hmm. What are you? What, what are you seeing as the biggest risks um, in investing in the social sector? I mean, are they different from other sectors? And is the perception of the risk the same um, from investors the same as the reality? The second part is easier to answer than the first part. The um, the perception of risk definitely does seem to be different to reality, and the the reason for that seems to be around there's still being so much uncertainty in the market. And I was talking to an investor a while ago, and, and they said, you know, we, we took a punt with social investments. We um, we thought it was very good because, you know, they were a, a, a charitable foundation, and they wanted to be seen as a, as a leader in the space. They made a few investments and at the end reflected and said, you know, actually the risk was a lot less and a lot lower than what we actually thought when we went into it. We want to reveal what the real risks are and uh, rather than looking at a uh, valuation approach to risk, looking at the, the real risk of, of an investor losing their money. Um, and what about returns? Uh, how do social investment returns through your work, how are you finding that they compare to investment in other sectors, especially given the, the context of the financial crisis? The, the information we're getting at the moment is only anecdotal um, and in a, in a way your questions uh, reveal uh, perhaps the, the need for having more robust time series data like, like our index, which is great, obviously. The, the range of returns seems to be you know, very, very wide-ranging. And again, it comes down to the, the motivation of investors, for some, some investors for investing in a, in a way that's, that's very similar to a, a private equity house, and they are targeting market rate returns and taking a view that social impact can be achieved on top of a healthy set of returns. And so, for example, we're seeing uh, returns very, very close to to market rates, if not um, matching market rates. On the other hand, we're seeing some investors who, for whatever reason, it might be a policy decision, if it's linked to government money or if it's maybe more philanthropic money that's gone in, uh, there might be a, a cap on the capital pricing. Uh, and, and we're seeing there that the... The investors themselves, when they when they were allocating the capital, were quite conscious to um, not provide risk-adjusted pricing. So, so we we then need to unpack what is is being revealed and saying, well, actually, there's a lot of low market rate returns, and and we need to understand what those um, you know motivations are behind the the investors, and what we are starting to uh, explore is whether the the, the capital pricing decisions themselves can start telling a story about uh, the relationship between, uh, let's say, risk overall um, in terms of the, again, the, the chance of investors losing their money and using that risk profile then to infer what uh, a break-even return might be for a particular segment of the market. And then effectively setting uh, a risk-adjusted return benchmark and then comparing that with actual capital pricing.
In your report, you um, spoke to a, a lot of social sector organisations who have uh, received social investment of one form or another, um, but it's actually quite a significant shift uh, for the social sector um, or some sectors, sections of the social sector. Uh, what barriers are you finding from the sector itself from, for the receipt of social investment? Certainly, a lot of organisations are excited about the social investment market. And uh, in the context of funding cuts and general austerity, uh, anything that is being presented as a, as a source of funding obviously captures a lot of ex excitement. You know, others saying, well, I, actually, at the end of the day, what we, what we just need to do is we need, we need more funding to carry on delivering our, our core services. And it really doesn't matter where we get the, the money from, whether it's social investment or the mainstream markets, we just need the money at the right price. Earlier and in, in your report, you highlight the use of intermediate or mezzanine financing for social investment. Uh, what are the characteristics of uh, intermediate finance that make it appropriate for the social sector? There tends to be overlapping characteristics of, of debt and equity um, through, the, through the spread of investment deals. Uh, there, there are quite a few interesting reasons for that. For example, uh, charities are... Uh, for example, their, their legal form restricts them to not have uh, private ownership, and that means that uh, technically they and legally they cannot uh, uh, take on equity investment. But at the same time, they often, uh, when embarking on new ventures, um, could and do require risk capital. They, they receive uh, um, a loan, so legally it's a debt instrument, but uh, because of the way it's structured and, and uh uh, also, uh, the way the returns are structured, potentially linked to uh, um, revenue targets or other uh, operational targets, it, it behaves very much like equity. And when you're looking at this, are you finding that the, the structure of the social impact organisation is, is of the most importance, or there are other factors, um, perhaps their legal form, um, or whether they're profit-making or non-profit? I think there are certainly patterns that emerge. And, and that are linked to, to legal forms. So, for example, an organization that's traditionally, a, say, a charity that's traditionally focused on uh, uh, grant funding or, or raising funding through donations, their fundraising teams probably have a slightly different focus to uh, and, and potentially even experience than what's required in organizations that are then taking on investments and need to then be able to present the, the business case and articulate the investment case to, to investors. So we're certainly seeing uh, that the, uh, the market generally and the organizations within the market generally are finding that they need to adapt and uh, uh, adjust their skills. So the idea of, of capacity building is, is one that is, is very prevalent in the discussions and I think very well recognized and identified as um, and I would extend that a little bit further and say it's the, you know, it's the capacity both of organizations receiving the money to understand suitability and appropriateness of investment to their operation, but also we need to focus on investors themselves and saying, you know, when, when investors are excited and interested in, in financing organizations with a social purpose, then we also need to look at building capacity there and, and understanding 
about these organisations and how they function and how they're motivated. Uh, social investment has a, a great potential for being able to expand the ability of um, social inter- impact organisations to sustain, but are there limits to what social investment can deliver, possibly about the type of organisation or the, the type of, of impact that's, that's being sought? I think there certainly are uh, limits. I'd be uh, cautious to um, to put down the limits as, as barriers. In a way, I think the limits are interesting challenges at the moment. There are there are very clear and hard limits to, to grant funding and philanthropic money or uh, even, um, you know, government funding. And so what we're finding is the really hard constraint is funding which does not need paying back is, is, is coming under greater pressure. So that is a very, very scarce resource. And so we're seeing uh, the social investment market emerge around that and to say, well, okay, you know, for many organizations, if there is a revenue model in there, if there are trading, for example, a trading charity with um, uh, with, with regular income, then it is very, very feasible to also look at diversifying the, the funding platform and start, start taking on board uh, uh uh, investment capital to, to help grow the business. Uh, we've seen this week that the uh, Prime Minister is choosing to highlight social investment in the upcoming G8 talks. What do you think should be the, the focus of, of what he is seeking in terms of international um, agreement on impact investing, social investing, uh, on the priorities that he should be putting forward for the UK? The big challenge is that it's still a very, very small market, so we need to see much more activity happening in it. And to do that, we need to see more capital flowing in. We also need the discussion to be much more deeply integrated. There's a there's, a, there's an awareness building requirement. I suppose if I was uh, in, in that arena, I'd look to position social investment as a, as a very real and tangible solution. Carl, thank you very much. I've just had one final question, which is, what would your advice be to MBAs who wish to work in social investment? The only advice that I would have is, uh, you know, get out there, get 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 the experience on the uh, at the front end, and that and that means um, identifying organisations who, uh, you know, you think are the ones that are are leaders in their field. Uh, you know, look at look at how they're recruiting, getting involved with them. Um, and and learn from the inside about how these organisations work, how the how the sector is functioning, and um, and also just you know immersing oneself in the in the discussion. There's so many various uh, uh, networking events that that one could attend, uh, and the real the real way of learning it is to actually speak to the people doing it and and get from them firsthand. What, what really is going on, what really excites them. And I suppose for those then that, that do have an entrepreneurial bent, to then be inspired and excited by that. And there's, there's lots of space in this, in this market to, to set up new organizations. So combined with good, healthy experience and uh, a real passion for, for doing something and recognizing a gap in the market, I'd say just go off there, take the leap. Um, and, and see where it goes. All right. Thank you very much, Carl. Thank, Thank you for you. your time. It's been very interesting. You're very welcome.